Acts 7 today. Um, we might do a little bit of 6 and 8, but uh, I think that's going to be where we spend most of our time. Excited to be with you. It's going to be a fun passage. I think I enjoy this passage a little bit different than a typical passage in the book of Acts, and that's because there are seven sermons in the book of Acts that are given, and this is the longest of the seven, what we're going to go through today. So it's a sermon inside of a sermon, just like Inception. So I'm going to do the best I can with this. Some of you, by the way, have been dog owners in the past. Raise your hand if you own a dog. Raise your hand if you couldn't wait to get rid of your dog. few of you, yeah. We've been intermittent dog owners um, as a family in the past, and, but I grew up with dogs, and this is one thing I knew about dogs. If it's a grumpy dog, you don't want to take away its bone while it's working on it, right? You just want to do that because you're going to get a growl if you do, a little bit of a just some, an alert to let you know, hands off the bone, I'm working on the bone. And that's because when a dog is working on a bone, it's like the whole world disappears. <laughs> they are so focused in. So whenever you put your hands all over that bone and take it away, it's like you're interrupting their world. And we get this because we do the same thing as people. If any of us were to go back and try to take a, a toy away from one of the toddlers this morning, by the way, you'd better be a parent if you did that or you'll get tackled by about six women. Um, you won't even make it to the kids. But if you did and you took away one of their toys, they'll growl at you too. It'll just sound a little bit differently. Um, if you are an overachieving student and someone takes an A away, you're going to growl. If you're a fatigued employee and you were really looking forward to that three-day weekend and that gets taken away from you, you will growl. We all have our bones, right? We all have something that we don't want anyone to touch. And I think the worst growls are when we lose things, things are taken away that we pull a very deep significance from, things that we say make us matter. You'll see this sometimes when um, a roster spot is pulled away from an aging athlete, right? That's something they got a lot of significance from. Maybe a founder of a company being pushed out of the board. This is going to be a little bit different. You might get a little bit more than a growl because this is more than just an interruption, in fact, you might even be putting them in a sort of living hell. You see, our whole world disappears whenever we're invested into something and it is taken away when we put too much investment into that thing. That thing that gives us purpose, the thing that makes us matter. When it's threatened, we do a lot of growling. And so one of the things we teach in our missional living class, which is a class we usually do about once a year, is in process of being a missionary to the city, one of the things that we learn quickly is we don't really know our friends very well, our neighbor as a friend, the person we work with as a friend, that if you were to try to write a one-page story on who your friend is, you'd struggle getting past just half of the page. But one of the ways you can discern who your friend is is to discern what is their version of living hell. I know that sounds odd. But what would have to happen to your friend for them to get out of bed in the morning and kind of just want to just get back into bed? Because the life that they're living, their reality just isn't a very enjoyable one anymore. And then, conversely, what is their, their picture of heaven on earth? Living heaven, right? What would it look like for them to hit the ground running, be excited, can't wipe the smile off their face, they have exactly what they want. They can't figure out why there's sad people in this world because they're so happy, right? So what is their hell, what is their heaven, and then therefore, what is the functional Jesus that moves them from one to the other? That thing that saves them, that is their bone. 
And that matters. That becomes a very, very valuable thing for gospel conversations because the gospel, on top of giving us bad news that there is failure in us, rebellion in us, and on top of it being good news that there is grace to us because of what Christ has done, it's a confrontational gospel because it confronts our functional saviors, the things that bring us from a functional hell to a functional heaven. It confronts them the things that we build with our hands, the things that we make out of creation to save us and to serve us, it confronts and it says that Jesus is better than all other affections. Christ is better than all other goods. And there actually is no salvation without this understanding. We don't, what I mean is is we don't add Christ to a collection of affections. He becomes the surpassing one. So on a shelf of things that we like, And love, Jesus isn't something that sits on that shelf. Jesus in a world of goods is the greatest good. In a world of many affections, he becomes our primary affection. Doesn't mean that we don't have affections for things in this world. We do. We love our family. We love laughter. We love the Vols. We love the city. We love our church. We love a lot of things. But nothing compares with our deep affection for Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself speaks to this in Luke 14, which is a passage that a lot of people struggle with, he says it this way, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, he's using the word hate, okay? The Greek for that word is hate. He's saying hate because that's what he's trying to communicate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That seems awfully adversarial, It seems oddly inappropriate even. This is how Dane Ortland speaks to this in one of his commentaries. He says, this message is so radically against our natural tendencies that Jesus must shock us with the language of hating one's loved ones and even one's own life. See, there's no growth without facing what it is that has become a bone in our life. That thing that we just cannot let anyone put their hands on. A thing that whenever we have it, the whole world disappears to us because we are in a very, very good place. But whenever it is taken away from us, we are in a very dark place. Something that we've overinvested our affections in that keeps us from a living hell. You see, as we jump back into our story, and this is not a history of the church, that's not what Acts is. Acts is a, a history of the church's mission, okay? But as we're moving through this, we're going to start to see a pivot around now, away from Peter being the one that's ticking off all the authorities to new people ticking off the same authorities. And today we're going to see the short ministry of Stephen. He is an absolute stud in church mission history, but it's a short-lived little chapter in his life. He was introduced last week as a servant leader that was appointed to care for widows, right? He was a man that was full of wisdom, the Bible said. This was also a guy that was full of a dependence on the Holy Spirit, and today he's going to level up to a martyr. He'll be the very first one as a martyr. But the scene is odd to me, the one we're about to read. It's an odd scene for me. So what I think would be most helpful is if we read it backwards, We're going to start at the very end and then capture the context of what's going on, then go back to the beginning and read so that it does make more sense to us. And so we're going to go to Acts 7, verse 51, if you have your Bible. Acts 7, verse 51, and this is the word of the Lord for us today. We will see Christ in this in a very vivid way. And Stephen, looking at people that are angry, says this to make them angrier. You stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I love that it says that he fell asleep. Such a brutal ending to a life to just peacefully fall asleep, right? You know, impressively, this guy is forgiving his attackers as they throw rocks. Not before, but as. I don't know about you, but I, I was an immature guy growing up and a little bit of a bro in college, so I got in a few rock fights, right? They're not that complicated. There are rocks everywhere. You just pick them up and throw them, and they throw them at you, and you dodge them, and you grab the rock that they threw at you, and you pick it up, and you just huck it right back at them. And here's the thing. Whenever you were hit by a rock, it just makes you want to throw it back even harder because it doesn't feel good to be hit by a rock. This guy's taking rock hits, and he is forgiving them in the process. And not only is he not throwing rocks back, he's not throwing insults back either. He's also not gloating. He's loving them, actually more than they deserve. You see, Stephen in this moment is what we've been calling for several weeks now, Jesus formed or Christ formed. You hear me use that phrase all the time, being in the shape of Jesus, being in the same form as Jesus. This is what I mean. This is what I mean. This is what it looks like to take the shape of Christ who did the exact same thing not too long before this. Jesus was the one that he looked up to, the one that he loved, and so naturally he starts to be formed by his king and by his rescuer. And as he is taking the very shape of Jesus, interestingly enough, he sees him. He looks up, heavens are parted. Jesus appears to him standing at the right hand of God waiting to receive the first martyr in the church. This is what's cool. What's cool is that in the end of all ends, if Revelation is true, and I believe that it is, we will see this sea of people dressed in white who overcame the evil one by the blood of Christ and by their story, the testimony, the gospel that they give. And guess what? We're going to get to see them. We're going to get to meet them. And Stephen's going to be the very first one. He's leading this whole thing. Here's the thing, I've read this passage dozens of times, even this week dozens of times, and I still have a hard time seeing how people could get so enraged that they would cover their ears and scream so not to hear what somebody else is saying. I mean, have you been fuming before? I've been fuming. Ever been enraged? I've been enraged. I've never stuck my fingers in my ears and screamed so as not to hear what the other person is saying. That sounds a little childish to me, a little animalistic even, to be honest with you. 
These people are rabidly attacking. How did it get to this place where these people are acting like animals? Thrashing, pushing, snarling, throwing. Maybe a better question is, what could one person say that would make a behaved, professional, educated people act like this when they believed in God? Because hear me, they did. These people, let's not forget that. They knew more about the Old Testament than anyone in this room. They prayed. They said spiritual things with spiritual words and spiritual places on spiritual days. They were a pure people. They fought for the purity of the word. They fought for the law, and apparently they threw rocks. So what I'd like to do is maybe back up and see how things got so aggressive because like it or not, this behavior is in each of us. We all have the ability to do something like this. We all have a bone that we will growl when it is threatened. When someone gets their hands on something that threatens to put us in a living, functional hell, we could be rock throwers really quick, really quick. And that's going to be a place of growth and discipleship for us as a people. And for those who are far from Christ, it is the place of salvation. So it's important for us. So let's go back to chapter 6 and pick it up in verse 8. Because this is what's going on. And this is how we got to this weird place that we're at right now. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Okay, so this, this is a guy that is full of wisdom, and now it's adding sweetness and strength as attributes to this wisdom and this dependence on the Holy Spirit. And in addition to demonstrating the gospel, which he's been doing through caring for widows, which he's been doing through these miraculous powers, this deep care of others, he's actually declaring it as well. Not just demonstrating the gospel, but he's declaring it and declaring it to a point that these Jewish influencers couldn't withstand his wisdom. By the way, Saul was one of them. He is from the Cilicians. I mean, I think we have this idea of Paul, who at this time is named Saul. I think we have this idea of him that he just shows up whenever the rocks start flying, right? That he just kind of like happens upon this scene where everyone's just beaning this guy with rocks. And he's like, you know what? Hey, this is kind of crazy. But if you put your jackets here, I'll watch over them. And, and that's like where he enters the story. Not so. He was part of this toxic, weird, crooked court scene where they are trying him. He's standing right there. And as impressive as we know Paul to be, he could not stand up against the wisdom of this basic guy named Stephen, right? So Jesus promised that this would happen. Luke 21, Jesus says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict infuriatingly, this simple guy cannot be pinned down. They are unable to seminary this guy to death, so they're going to cancel him by smearing his name. That's the next tactic that they use. So look at verse 11. It says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, so now they're going to stir up people who cannot be ignored as they say things that cannot be unheard, and it doesn't matter whether he is misrepresented or not. Doesn't matter. Lying is fine for them. Cheating is fine for them right now because the big deal is he has to be stopped. This is a crooked court scene. Again, just in the shape of Christ. Most scholars believe that when Jesus himself was prosecuted, that there were over 20 laws that were broken. 20 of their laws that they broke. And here we're starting to see something very similar. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What is that about? It's interesting. But it's more than just interesting. You see, there's only one other time that we really see that that probably jump out in the horizon of your mind, and that's when that happened to Moses. When God gave Moses the law, his face was illuminated as like an angel. And here we have Stephen who is going to interpret the law and preach it, who's also been given the same endorsement by God. That's why his face looks like it does. And he's not going to blaspheme God's law, but he's going to show its deeper beauty. Listen, God's law is beautiful before Christ because it shows the character of God. It shows his love for us. But what Stephen is about to do is draw the beautiful texture of the meaning of the law out for everyone to be amazed by. Let's look how he starts off. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after they shall come out and worship me in this place, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Okay, let's pause right there for a moment. Stephen begins a very long sermon here. I mean, from Abraham to Solomon. He's going to take dozens of chapters in your Bible and squish them together right here because he's going to retell the story of God. Big question here. Why is he doing this to people that already know the story? I mean, listen, public speaking 101, whether you take it in college or don't take it in college, it is just to know the room. Read the room. Know who it is you're talking to. He's wildly failing here. He's speaking to a people who have his sermon memorized before he even starts. They probably know the details better than he does. How boring. How boring. Even now, even now you might be tempted to be bored by this. Because if you're like me, you probably have already looked ahead and thought, how many verses are in this? How many verses? Is Luke's not, is he going to read all of them? <laughs> it's a lot of verses. It's like a long recap of an episode you just watched. So you just hit skip recap. And that's what we typically do on a passage like this. We skip the recap. 
George Bernard Shaw, who was a playwright back in the 20th century, he read this, and he said Stephen was a conceited and tedious bore for preaching the sermon to these people. I think he just missed the masterpiece in it, and I think he missed it by a mile. Let's not be careful to do the same. What Stephen is doing here is he's unlocking the Old Testament so that we see its perfect answer. If you want to understand the Old Testament, by the way, you don't consider yourself very learned when it comes to the Old Testament, this is, a, this is a great passage for you. This is a fantastic passage for us. In fact, we're going to see a couple big ideas that are repeated. They're not the only big ideas, right? But we're doing this in like 38 minutes. So I'm going to give you the two big ones that are going to pertain to where we're going with this passage today. And this is what I consider to be the big idea. One of the big ideas that you're going to see repeatedly through Stephen's sermon is that God is not contained in places made by human hands. I mean, where do we find him? We're going to find him in a temple in a tabernacle. He's in Mesopotamia. It's a land full of idols. They don't have any structure built to hold God. And then the second thing that we're going to see is not only is he not contained in places made by human hands, he comes carrying grace wherever he goes. He's graceful, giving favor to a man in Abraham that doesn't deserve it. Let me just make this clear. God did not find Abraham a Christian and then recruit him. That's not how that goes down. He found him worshiping idols. He found him barking at the moon. That's what they did in Mesopotamia. He found him far from God and rescued him. He carried grace with him. Okay, let's go look at verse 9. And he continues, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor of Shechem. Okay, I mean, you could just tell if you have read the Old Testament, it's like every sentence is a chapter of the Old Testament, so he's flying through this. But again, we're gonna see the same two points. Remember the base of two points, God is not contained in a place made by hands. Where do we find him now? Egypt, another place full of idols and idol worshipers. And what is he doing? He's carrying grace with him, bringing favor, not just to a failed man in Joseph, but also to failed groups of people like Egypt and even Joseph's family. I mean, did you notice it? Joseph, in the story, is rejected by his own countrymen. He's a rejected leader. And then Egypt rejects him by putting him in jail before he's elevated. So God doesn't just give Joseph grace in that story. He's giving grace to the Egyptians. He's giving grace to the family of God. Look what it says in verse 17 as we continue to move through this. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. 
At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me? Just as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came from the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man set us both ruler and redeemed by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Let's pause right there for a moment. Basic two principles. God is not contained in a place made by hands. Where is he found now? Not Mesopotamia or Egypt, but in Midian. Midian. And God is once again carrying grace for failed, idol-worshiping people. And just like Joseph, we see a rejected leader in Moses who will eventually lead his people out of slavery. So we're starting to see the same basic two principles over and over and over again. None of these would make anyone plug their ears and scream and start looking for rocks. I haven't come across anything inflammatory yet. I haven't tripped on anything that's problematic yet. Well, let's keep going. Verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, We do not know what become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch 
and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Okay, again, God is not contained in a place made by hands. But now he's in the wilderness. Now the wilderness. And again, he's showing grace to many who worshiped idols. Now he would destroy some, but the majority of that nation, he would carry forth and give them a land dispossessed as an inheritance, as a sign of his grace and his love. In fact, this is how it says it in verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua and when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out, before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And there it is. There it is. Stephen drawing attention to God showing up wherever he wants, carrying grace with him. It's the same thing. Just read the test, just the Old Testament, the whole thing, read it. God shows up, he talks. He gives promises, he delivers on his promises. He rescues his people. He brings grace over and over and over again. John Stott, he, he calls God in this fashion and form, especially in a passage like this, a pilgrim God. Always found traveling. Always found in a place like Midian. Always in a place like Egypt or the wilderness. Bringing grace to be with his people. He is unanchored to an address. We can't build anything with our hands. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with a temple or a tabernacle. God actually asked his people to build those, and he said that they were very good. But those would be places for God to bring his presence, not a place for him to call home. Not his home. Not his residence. And here's the big key. We can't imprison God. We can't contain him and anchor him to an address. After all, what could we make that would contain God? Where would he rest, as he says? I mean, creation is his footstool. What on earth could we build? You see, the main accusation against Stephen right now is that Jesus said he would destroy the temple. Now, that's totally misrepresented. Not that they cared any, but it's misrepresented. But, I mean, let's be honest. Jesus would, in fact, make the temple obsolete because he's going to replace it. He's going to be the perfection of it. He himself would be God's presence on earth. Jesus is the presence of God among mankind. Again, not contained in a house made by human hands, but in the Son of God himself. That's why he's named Emmanuel, God with us. And after we hurt him and destroyed him with our hands, and he is resurrected by the power of God, he sends his spirit to the church to dwell with us, and now we are the living temple of the living God. And God is with us. Emmanuel, again, not in a place made with human hands. He's here with us now, today. Now this is what is going to take their bone away. This is what's going to make them plug their ears and go bananas. That very thing that they needed to, to matter, to have meaning, this temple 
this religion, these traditions are all being obsolete. I mean, the temple is a symbol of what could be achieved by effort, by their ingenuity, by their discipline, by their diligence. It's the work of their hands. It, become, it became a little bit of a logo for their religion and their tradition and their culture. It gave them the sense of purpose. It gave them a sense of meaning. It was their bone. It had turned into a little bit of an idol. So obviously destroying this is going to be an issue because what they think is going to be taken away from them is not just a building, but it's the center of gravity for them. But Jesus did come to destroy a system of man-centered worship, which is all religion is. I mean, religion has been defined a million different ways by a million different people. But in the most simplest of, of definitions, religion is just something that man builds to have access to a God, where we can do or not do certain things to gain a sort of adoration or punishment, but it's something that we put together. To use the word on a broad scale. And at the heart of every world religion is a controllable God. One that can be predicted and formatted. One that we can really have power over. If I do this God, you must do that. That's the deal, right? Which is why all world religions are based on behavior of some kind. If I do good things, good things are sure to come. And this is the long list of things that my religion says are good things. And this is the long list of things that my religion says is bad things. And that allows us to some degree control our fate. We demonstrate our own power, our own righteousness. We get to flex our own glory. We rule. But if Stephen is right, God can't be controlled. He can't be pinned down or formulated or manipulated or programmed. He shows up in Midian. He shows up in the wilderness. He carries grace to people that don't deserve it. This is very different. We can't put this kind of God in debt to us. He's a sovereign God who needs nothing from us. The fact that he's even mindful of us is mind-bending. This is a God that's worthy of all of our worship. He gives grace and favor to people that really don't deserve it. He gives mercy by not bringing a discipline and a punishment to people that really do deserve it. He's thoughtful for us. Later on, Paul would say in Colossians 1 that he is before all things and in him all things hold together doesn't sound like a God that we can pin down. He tells the Roman church, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever, amen. This is a God that exceeds boundaries. And yet the good of the gospel is that he comes to stiff-necked rebels like you and me, bound in our skin. He was a baby who became a servant, who became a replacement on the cross for us. He would be a rejected leader like Joseph and like Moses here. He would be God's presence among us, just like the tabernacle and the temple. He would be God's grace to us. Not just grace to people who have stones thrown at them, but he's also a grace to people who are throwing stones. Paul being a great example of that. This gospel, this tradition replacing gospel is enraging the elite. And they're acting like animals. Because they're saviors in tradition and religion. They're bone. Their idol is being threatened. But in 2022, we don't have temples and tabernacles to pull our meaning from, right? And that's why this is such a hard passage for people. How can we grow from a sermon inside of a sermon like this? What does that even mean? I think the big question is, is what is your bone? What is it for you? It might not be a temple. It's not a temple for me. 
But what is it that you are pulling so much significance from, that thing that makes you matter in this world? Because listen, we're not far from these rock throwers. They are about to take their jackets off so they could get full rotation whenever they put some spin on the rock. That's how serious they are. That's how angry they are. They're drooling, they're screaming, they're thrashing. I mean, did you notice in this passage that they didn't even pronounce a, a, a judgment? This is not a court-ordered execution. This is a lynch. This has gone off the tracks. This is mob action right here. What gets us to this place as people? What gets you to this place? One moment we're refined and educated and professional, and then someone touches our bone, and then we growl, they take it away, and we snap. What is it for you that whenever you have it, you're in functional heaven? Things could not be better. I mean, you're so enamored with it. You're so happy to have it. You can't imagine life without it. What is that thing that whenever it is taken away from you, puts you in a sort of functional hell? You can't imagine moving one day forward without it. What is that for you? Maybe you get just a little bitterly defensive about it. You make excuses for it. You say that it's not an idol. It doesn't have any power over you. Yet, if you're honest with yourself, you know you're losing a lot of sleep over it at the same time. And if it was removed, it would turn you into an animal. It's something that you say to yourself, I cannot give this up. I can't live without this. I can't live without, I have to have this. And don't be fooled. Some of these bones, these idols, are socially acceptable and it doesn't make them healthy for you. Any, any good thing can still be a very bad Jesus. You could worship your children or worse yet, you could worship the achievements of your children because of what it says about you as a parent. Something that we do. You can worship work. That's socially acceptable. We love it. We go to TED Talks to listen to people talk who are just so enamored with their work that they've learned how to produce so much more in a shorter amount of time, right? It's socially acceptable. Worshiping your spouse is socially acceptable. All these things can be acceptable. We call it responsible, but what it really is is just sitting on the same shelf as Jesus, and whenever that thing is threatened, it feels like it can end us. And even up to this point in a sermon like this, you might have already had a couple things flash through your head of what this could be for you. You might not be sure. You might even be defending it already. But you know it could be true because you're afraid to ask God if it's an idol. You're afraid he might say yes. You maybe dare not bring it up with your closest friends because you're afraid they might say, yeah, that might be an idol for you, man. You're afraid you might have to let it go. Jesus did not come to destroy a temple. He came to destroy man-centered religion. Now, hear me. Christianity, like the world religions, is also behavior-based. It's just not based on your behavior, right? God is not impressed because we behave. He loves us because of how Christ has behaved. God's affection is for us because of the behavior of another God is kind to the religious and the rebellious at the same time, giving us grace, granting us the ability to return, to repent. He's kind to idol worshipers. He's kind to murderers and overreactors, to rock throwers. He states himself in the Old Testament as a God that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, showing faithfulness to thousands 
and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This means, this is what this means, is that he does not stop pursuing us because we have sinned once or twice or 10 times or 70 times or seven times, 70 times or seven million times or seven billion times. He doesn't stop. If you can still repent, he still dispenses mercy. It's one of the beautiful aspects of what the gospel is. Here's my question. If all of that is true, then what can we make with our hands? What kind of tradition, religion, what can we find in creation that can give us this level of adoration and love? What can replace what the gospel describes? All other small gods will leave us. Listen, kids rebel. Spouses die. Reputations can be ruined. Jobs can be lost. Even good things make horrible gods. But the beauty is God never leaves us, and so we'll never lose meaning. We'll never stop mattering because of who God is for us. We'll never find a functional living hell because he goes before us. He is Emmanuel, and he carries grace. And as I've said a few other times, if you are a Christian, this is as bad as it gets. This is as bad as it gets for you. I mean, you're going to have bad days for sure. You're going to mourn. You're going to travail. You're going to have difficult days. But uh, as we walk on this landscape of broken glass and jagged edges and we just feel the heat from a crooked and broken creation, this is as bad as it gets because our God never leaves us. Pulling meaning from the world will have you always walk in this tightrope between heaven and hell. Always. So friend, listen, when you growl, know that that's an area for repentance. Something, something has been elevated above Jesus. Something. I mean, sure, we're going to endure sadness when things fall away from us. But when we act like animals, when we start looking for rocks, that's the point where we repent. We've made an idol. Our heart's very good at it. We'll always make idols. So we repent. And we don't just repent for making an idol. We don't even just repent for overreacting. But we also find a place of repentance for what we don't believe to be true about God. Where is it that we call God a liar? We learn about this in some of our missional communities as we move through some of that material, that behind every sin is an accusation that God is not telling the truth about something. It's a place of unbelief. It's, it's, it's a moment where we say God is not good or God is not graceful or he is not great. He's not glorious. He's not something. So we don't just repent for maybe losing our cool a little bit. We don't repent for just making a small idol. We repent for the moment where we say, God, you are not who you say you are. I've called you a liar. I've thought you to be a liar by how I've carried myself. That unbelief, that's a seed of many sins and much unhappiness. There's going to be room for us to repent there as a church. And listen, if you're far from Christ, you're watching online, or maybe even you're here, I think one thing we can agree on, even though we might not agree on a bunch, I don't know where you're at, but the small Jesuses that you've had in your life, they've been ripping you off as long as you can remember. Ripping you off. Totally making promises, never delivering. Always talking. Always saying that you just got to give a little bit more. But this is the mathematics behind idol worshiping. It's one of diminishing returns. You keep giving more and more, and it just keeps giving less and less. 
But it always promises that if you give a little bit more, you'll finally have that functional heaven on earth. But it never comes, does it? It never comes. It's because it's lying to you. Idols cannot save you. They cannot keep their promises. Christ, however, is our promise maker and our promise keeper. And he brings all the comfort and identity and grace and goodness that the human heart could possibly contain. So much, so much that a guy like Stephen, so sweet and strong and wise, is getting hit with rocks meant to kill him to the place where he crumbles to his knees to cry out. And what do we get out of this? Acts 8, 1 through 3. This is how that little part of the story ends. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, that might be true. I will tell you, though, when we get to Acts 20, you'll find out quickly that this moment right here, jackets at his feet, blood on the ground, this stained Paul's soul. He remembered it. Acts 20, he starts to reminisce over how the blood fell from Stephen as it did from Christ. I could never know this, but I think if there was one human being that was really helpful in the salvation of Paul, I think it was Stephen here. Just a deacon. Just a deacon, just serving widows, just putting his time in, just trying to be helpful. This just never left his memory. How many people holding coats right now, supervising evil acts today, are going to be tomorrow's apostles? How encouraging is that thought? Right? How many aggressive rock throwers are going to be tomorrow's pastors and church planters and counselors and seminary professors and deacons and housewives and husbands and employers and employees and CEOs and community group leaders and co-leaders and how many? I mean, this is exciting for me. We have so much work to do as a church. Or rather, I should say, Jesus has so much work to do through a faithful church. But I do think it all starts with, what is it that you cannot live without? What can we not live without? Because as we make disciples or children, we have to ask, are they going to see idols in our life? Are they going to see bones in our life? Or a posture of, I surrender all. I surrender all, which you're going to sing here in just a little bit. You're going to sing that. And I didn't know that when I first put this sermon together. It's just something providential that the Lord put together. It's an old song from the 1800s, an old hymn. And it kind of just went away. And then it came back during the Crusades, during Billy Graham. Billy Graham made it popular again, and it kind of has not fallen out of rotation ever since Billy Graham. And I remember being a kid and listening to my parents car radio as they would listen to these hymns when they were Christians. And I thought, this has got to be, I don't know, I'm not given to exaggeration except for every day. But I would say this is the most boring hymn I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, I don't know how he hasn't just fallen asleep at the wheel and pulled the car into a ditch. It is that boring. You know, I surrender all. It has this drone. I mean, just as a kid, I thought this is horrible. But I'm telling you, as a Christian, when I didn't just sing it, but I gave it, I embodied it, 
I felt it. I promised it. I stepped into the hymn. It became life-changing. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I'm picturing a Stephen on his knees, one breath away from death, as he's forgiving, rock-throwing, stiff-necked people. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. That is the posture of a heart that has no bones. That's the posture of a heart that when idols come up, they are quickly put down. Even though they mostly go down screaming, they get put down. 